You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Hi, and welcome to Radiotherapy. What a long intro music segment that was. It's because it's so active here in the studio this morning. As we're edging our way closer to summer, it's time to think about holidays and time with the family, a lot of which will be spent outside. I mean, why not? We have the best beaches in the world, great gardens, terrific bushwalks and trails. Australia is a veritable cornucopia of outside delights. But we need to be smart about it. We need to be smart about it. Can you see where I'm heading with this? I'm talking sun smart. So in celebration of the upcoming summer season, we have in the studio with us Dr. Jan Pan, specialist dermatologist. Jan will be talking with us about the human body's biggest organ, the skin. He'll be telling us about the latest research and what we can do to be even sun smarter than our parents were. Okay, now here's a mental exercise. Imagine taking the lungs out of a body, transporting them, then inserting them into a waiting recipient. It's incredibly complex surgery, but that's only the start of the transplant journey. Following the operation, there are risks of immune rejection, infection, mechanical failure, and a hundred other complications. And that's where Professor Greg Snell comes in. At the Alfred Hospital, where Greg is the head of the lung transplant service, he and his team manage the bewildering array of complexities involved in keeping those two big breathing balloons healthy and functioning in a body they weren't born into. Greg's clinical stories and research is must-listen radio, so you must listen. And what would Sunday mornings on Triple R be without Nurse EpiPen? Her effervescent laugh, effervescent laugh, there there she is, I haven't turned on her mic, her meticulous organising ability (laughs) and her choice of medical research to review makes her the linchpin of her show. Maybe she should do the paddling as well because I certainly can't. No, no, I'm not doing buttons. I'll just press them. I'm very bad with this. Uh, All this plus some tunes. We've got some tunes. Uh, So take a deep breath and say... Ah, it's radiotherapy for the next hour. Good morning, Nurse EpiPen. Good morning, team, and Dr. Mao. Nice to see you, and you like it? You wrote in this morning? Yeah, gosh, uh, but I have got my long sleeves on, and I'm looking forward to hearing about um, some skin things. Oh, you're being so smart. The big M. You know what I'm going to ask Yan Pan when we get him to, uh, to talk about skin is, can you get sunburnt through cloudy sky? I've had this debate with my kids a lot. So stay tuned for that. Speaking of Yan Pang, good morning. Well, good morning, Dr. Mel. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. Um, You know, whenever we get specialists on the show, it's kind of like my own medical uh, sort of consultation. (laughs) I'm just going to be firing questions at you that I would be asking the doctor kind of like, you know, at a GP clinic. So prepare yourself. I'll do my best. Professor Greg Snell, great to have you on the show too. Good morning. Now, um, you're on call too, aren't you? I am, yes. So you were asking me just before you went to where, when are the breaks? Is that so you can answer your pager? or you... It's so I can recover between the, uh, <laughs> the different parts of the conversation. <laughs> well, we're, uh, we're going to put you under the, uh, under the grill too. We're going to ask you some, uh, some about, something about not just what you do day to day, because it is incredibly fascinating, but also what led you to do this and how you actually got into an area which I imagine when you started off wasn't, um, there wasn't a long, lot of lung transplant surgery going on. You probably, you probably had to go overseas to do it, I would imagine. Correct. Went to Canada. Yeah. Did you come? 
Whereabouts? Toronto. Okay, well, we'll ask you about that when we get to your segment on the show. Nurse EpiPen, the latest in medical literature. What do we have? Okay, taking it away, I broadened my horizons on the 1st of November, Wednesday evening, and went to the Wheeler Centre. So that's a free centre that's funded by the authors or owners of um, the travel books, The Lonely Planet. Mm. Anyway, the topic that I that I sort of went to listen to was about the sound of cancer. The sound of cancer? The sound of cancer. So to start with, um, the, um, the host and coordinator of the show was an oncologist by the name of Dr. Ranjana Srivastava, mm-hmm. who you would, everybody would know. She writes in the in the papers, she's an oncologist at Monash, yep. and um, she's got a Fulbright scholarship in ethics and all sorts of things, and is a right. And she was she's got superb. a Fulbright in ethics. She's got a Fulbright in I'm ethics. So jealous. And That's an amazing. OAM. So she's got a gong for wow. being such a good citizen. Wow. Um, but she was at because she's an oncologist, she was perfect for mm-hmm. coordinating the show. So the other people on the panel were Professor Jonathan Seabon, who's at the Austin. Mm-hmm. He's the medical director of cancer services at the Oliver Newton John Cancer Wellness Centre, and his particular interest is in immune therapy of cancer, which will be something we will touch on today. So I'm not going to be uh, spoil that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Professor Mark Shackleton, who's at the Alfred, he's the director of oncology and he's the research fellow and chair of the Australian and New Zealand melanoma trials. And another person who's, he's not medical, but he's got, um, uh, he's a physicist, cancer biologist and head of, co-head of cancer research at La Trobe University. And he was the one that was really putting the sound spin on cancer. So recording sounds and um, playing them to us. And I thought it was going to be a little bit left of centre and I wasn't going to really enjoy that part of it. But in fact, it was very interesting and it wasn't a big part of it. It was really about talking about cancer and the noises, but also at a clinical patient level. So there were sounds from patients incorporated into this program. Mm -hmm. So, and we started by talking about, um, so Mark Shackleton, they... um, Ranjana asked each person what their sounds of cancer was like. And um, really interesting, Mark Shackleton said that his sound for cancer is silence, so there's no sound. Mm. So, And particularly around the delivery of a diagnosis mm. of cancer, so people stop and don't breathe mm. and don't and then there's all sorts of sounds people gasping people crying people screaming and that sort of they were the parts of the sounds so but what um the thing that uh that uh, ranjana said is one of the key things that marks the diagnosis of cancer mm. is feeling the utter disempowerment mm. and loss of control mm. And it was a program really putting um, that together with supporting patients and what's the latest. Mm. And it, just some, some, fi- some figures from the talk was that cancer will touch most Australian mm. lives. Mm. So my sister is dealing with breast cancer. In Australia, it's average that 131 people will die from cancer every day in this country. Mm. And a new case of cancer is diagnosed every four minutes. So that's just sort of a background of cancer. But um, the, the, it was an interesting thing, and I looked a bit further onto the sounds of cancer, and there's a physicist at the Toronto, 
Toronto Ryerson University, and mm. he's an international expert in ultrasound and photoacoustic imaging. Mm. So I'm just going to l- read this little excerpt from that I got, and then I thought I'd talk to the others about. I what think I know what photoacoustic imaging is. Is that where you turn an image, a visual image, into sound? Well, it, it is. Or the other way around? It, it is. So it's linked with this new word that I've learnt about, sonification. Right. So everybody's gone. Making Whoa. something into a sound? Yes. It's the use of non-speech audio to convey information or perceptualise data. Ah, okay. So uh, really it's, and what it was like, if, if you look at a sound panel and you see yep. all the graph yep. going yep. up and down, yep. it's a bit like that. Yeah. Yep. Oh, okay. Yep. And you do that for diagnosis or? Uh, this is very early days, thinking that they might be able to di- diagnose. Disorders. Dis- and- yes. Fascinating. Yes. Absolutely fascinating. I'm not exactly clear about how they would pick up this sound, yeah. but I'll just read you this thing that I looked up. Yeah. So, from Dr. Collios, he <clears throat> is the expert chap that I mentioned before. So, using a customised microscope that mm. combines ultrasound and laser technology. Has to be a laser in there somewhere. Yeah. 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 Dr. Collios will eavesdrop on the sounds of cells by firing ultrasound and laser waves at a drop of a patient's blood. And when the light hits the cells in the blood, a high-frequency squeal will be emitted and allowing researchers to take pictures of the sound waves and create sound profiles for different cells in the blood. You know, it sounds so out there that it's got a, that it's one of those things that may bear fruit. You know, it's just so out there. And we're all kind of going, Really? But who knows? Who knows where that may end up? That's yeah. you know, how great discoveries are made. Yeah. Has it been published? Yes. In a peer-reviewed journal? Didn't get that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The, no, the Melbourne gonna, people... I'm look that up. The Melbourne people at La Trobe University yeah. have published. Yeah? Yeah. So, uh, Greg, Greg, are you nodding? You're nodding because you know about this study? Or? No, no, I'm just thinking when people say they're listening to their body, maybe that's what ah, they're referring to. Ah, sonification. I was thinking sonification. of personification. Hey, I went to my 30-year medical reunion... I know I don't. Are you that old? old? Yeah, I know. <laughs> and um, you know what really got me was there were people who I hadn't seen for thirty years, and I, you know, remembered their name. G'day Pete. G'day Greg. G'day Joanne. You know, I remembered, you know, their names and what they did, and the guy that tried to cheat off my physiology exam next to me. All this sort of stuff came back to me, and it was like it was yesterday. And I just thought, wow, you know, this is it's memories are an amazing thing. Anyway, so I was looking at. I just happened to be looking at um, Science Daily, which is a website, and they um, reported, sciencedaily.com, they reported on a study from, I love this place, it's a French study, it's from Toulouse, which is a place in France, uh, what's the name, it's from the Centre de Recherche, Cerveau and Cognition Research Unit. Now you, you went to um, you went to Canada, didn't you, uh, Greg? Toronto. Toronto. Yeah. Is your sp- French they, better than yeah. that? Uh, it's not they, bad French. Uh, they speak English. <laughs> <laughs> okay. and, uh, it was Toulouse and Paul Sabatier, and basically, what these guys did was they uh, ten years ago they had a group of research subjects who they did an experiment on with memory. They showed them uh, ten clip art images and um, or uh, sorry dozens of clip art images and they just got them to remember them they brought them back 10 years later and s- looked to see whether they could remember those clip art images so they'd show them some more some some of the images from 10 years ago and then some some new clip art images and they said which ones are the ones from 10 years ago and surprisingly a lot of people did way better than chance 
at remembering those images, which they were only shown for a few seconds in, an, in, a, in, a, in a controlled experiment with no emotion 10 years ago, which is fascinating because what we, I mean, what a lot of neuroscientists understand, not that I'm a neuroscientist, you know, but what, we understand, what I understand is that the more emotionally charged a memory is, the more likely it is to stay and the more you try and think about it. So if you're studying for an exam, you go through and you try and remember the, you know, the, I don't know, the Krebs cycle or whatever it's going to be. And you put conscious effort into it. So conscious effort and emotional um, tone lead to long-term memories. But here, here are memories which there was no emotional tone, there was no repetition. It was a few seconds a decade ago and people remembered. So these guys are speculating at the research centre that there are specialised neurons in the brain that just look after those fleeting images and you can recall them without having recalled them for 10 years. Where, where is it? <laughs> It's in France. <laughs> the wizard in your brain. <laughs> it's somewhere in your brain. I want to say hello to it. Does that ever happen to you? Have you ever run into somebody who you haven't seen for like, yes, like yes. 50 years and you go, yes. oh, Pen, how are you? But sometimes I can do that. Yeah. One day yeah. I can remember somebody I haven't seen for 20 years and then the next day I your can't. Your kid comes up to I you and says, Well, no, I can see somebody I haven't seen for 20 years and I can't remember their name. Yeah. But I've got a really good clue for remembering names or oh, tell tip. Me, tell me, tell me. So if when you're introduced to somebody, yeah. so hello, Dr. Dr. Mal, yeah. shake their hand yeah. and say their name again. Yeah, I do that. So, hello, Dr. Mal. And somewhere along the line, by repeating their name, there that's a little bit of a help for remembering their name when you're at a party and you go and say goodbye to them and you might remember them. It's just, it does work for me. Repeating the name, but, I think associating the name with somebody too. But yes. often in the anxiety of meeting somebody, you're so kind of caught up in, you know, saying hello, whatever, you kind of forget to do all that stuff. But okay, remember the name. And maybe you'd say their name like, oh, Mal, that's like pal. Say it a few times. Or Pen, yes. that's like Jen. Yes. Yeah, so you kind of build an associate. No, not do that. No, well, then head. you'll call them Jen. That's true. That's, that's why I have no friends. Greg's got a tip. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, I use uh, the exact opposite part of my brain when I'm at medical administration meetings because I don't recall them. <laughs> It's <laughs> probably a good thing. <laughs> okay. Um, Jan, so good to have you on the show. I need to ask you, these, you know, if, if you could dispel some of the most common fallacies about skin dermatology, skin cancers, eczema, you, you, you pick the top three in your mind, what would they be? That's a, that's a good question, Dr. Mahal. So I, I should have prepared you. Should yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think there's... There's a lot of controversies there. Okay. And then the top one that comes on to me is yeah. about sunscreen use. Yeah. Right? So, because there's a lot of public perception about the safety of sunscreens and it's when cool. to use them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and do they actually work? So, I think that's something okay. that would be right well, up the okay. top of my list. Let's unpack that one sunscreen. So, yeah. the way I see it is the higher the number, the better. Yeah. Um, tr- to a degree. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think you need to go too high. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything over 30. We'll do the job. SPF okay. 30. SPF 30. So, yeah. uh, in Australia, they're licensed to be 50 plus, mm-hmm. and in the States, it goes up to 80, 90, as high as they want. <laughs> um, but the effects are really beneficial from 30 plus. Mm-hmm. And as a general rule, we say just go for 30 right. as a starting point. So tell us some of the fallacies or some of the misconceptions we have about sunscreen and sunsmart. Well, f- major one we want to dispel, as mm-hmm. we as in dermatologists mm-hmm. and uh, in the Cancer Council, is that it does work. Right, and um, it can prevent skin cancers if you use it. Uh, get questions all the time from my patients: Do I need to put sunscreen on? Mm-hmm. You know, is this going to do anything? And studies have definitely shown that if you use it properly, up to about fifteen to seventeen hundred melanomas a year 
can be you know, eradicated or not be reduced mm-hmm. if sunscreen was applied mm-hmm. appropriately. It, it is quite amazing, isn't it? I, you know, whenever I put sunscreen on or put it on my kids, I think this little bit of cream is going to stop a cancer, really? Yeah, it, it does create a nice barrier. So you've said put it on properly. What, oh, yes, what does that mean? What oh, does yes, that mean? That's, that's, that's another <laughs> kind of gift you've opened there. Um, so putting it on properly, I don't, and the studies have actually shown majority of us don't do it properly, right? So, oh. so do we know that you need to reapply every two hours? Two, I thought it was four. And what about the one? But what, really? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that came as a shock to me when I heard it too. But yes, on the on the packaging, they yeah. usually say every four hours. A lot of yeah. them, um, but studies have shown just recently, two hours is when you need to reapply, and twenty percent of us never reapply, which is shocking. Yeah. So they put it on at the start of the day at eight o'clock, spend a whole day at the beach. Yeah. By about ten o'clock, the effects are gone, and right. they wonder why they're burnt at the end of the day. Right, um, and. Is it, it does um, sunscreen prevent all uh, skin cancers like uh, squamous cell cancer? Yeah, so? absolutely. Oh, really? It does prevent. So, obviously, the skin cancer is the one we're trying to um, get the message out to the public, but it also reduces <clears throat> the amount of sun damage you get to the skin in terms of the aging process, right? So, one way that you know people look older is partly because of the damage they've done from the UV rays. Right. So. If you don't want to do it for the skin cancer point of view, there's a twofold <laughs> reason. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm just going to throw it in there because I'm not sure when I'm going to get an opportunity yeah. next time is. So we're blocking out all um, the sun, but a couple of weekends ago in the age um, pull-out section, it was about MS mm. and the maybe the potential of losing our amount of vitamin D that we can absorb. So, you know, is there a risk yeah, balance? That's a great question, actually. Um the, the, there's, again, very common question I get daily. Does um, vitamin D levels get affected by sunscreens? Do I, you know, do I need to worry about my bones, mm-hmm. MS? Um, there's actually a study, you know, it's actually many years ago that demonstrated with proper sunscreen use, it doesn't actually affect your vitamin D levels. Really? Yeah, and people seem to forget about that when they're quoting studies. So I try to reassure my patients, if you put it on properly... Don't need to worry about your vitamin D levels. Right. And the other things, you can always get your vitamin D levels checked. There's other reasons why it's not high enough and they can be easily replaced. Um, what about the question I sort of posed before? Uh, can you get sunburnt and can you get sun damage, skin damage, on, on cloudy days like today? So. Yes, absolutely. So it's, 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 um, it, that's why we, the Cancer Council created this app for your smartphone, for the SunSmart app, right? It gives you a daily reading of the UV index. Right. Um, and there's actually a release next week, Tuesday, I believe, um, just showing the benefits of it. So in Australia, if the UV index is more than three, you should be putting on sunscreen. In addition Sorry, to... Below, above, above, above three. three yeah. um, and that can be on a sunny day or cloudy day like today. So, um, so on the app, it'll tell you what the... Correct, tell you what the current UV index is for, the, for Melbourne for that day. And it's meant to be a guide for the public to know when to put on their sunscreens because you can't gauge it by the amount of sunlight like you're seeing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. That's where a lot of the bad sunburns are. During achieved. cloudy, cloudy days. Yeah. What about through glass? Ooh, good Ooh, question. Through very glass. Very good question. <laughs> yes, and it's, a, it's the same sort mm-hmm. of um, fallacy that people think sometimes behind glasses you can protect it. And unless you have specialised glasses that, um, for example, for the pilots, you know, with playings and things, 
through car windows is not a great protection. You should be putting on your sunscreen for that if you're going to be having a long drive. I've been lying to my family for the last 20 years. I Me said, too. nah, it's, it's windows. You can't get burnt oh, through no. windows. It blocks UV. Oh, no. The, pa- the majority of the patients I Oops. see with large number of skin cancers, there's definitely a, a sort of a, um, a sort of increased rate on the driving arm. Right. Because to put the driving room out the window, oh, though, not they? necessarily. Just the fact that it is sort of resting. You know, when you're driving, it is oh, resting, resting against, in the sun. Yeah, yeah. Oh. it is one where you're getting the most amount of UV exposure. So, the, I mean, it does provide some uh, protection. The various we're um, all looking at our arms. Now, yes, I, I know. <laughs> now, I, a friend of mine told me another dermatologist said that, and tell me if this is right or wrong, that the prevalence of your chance of getting a melanoma is one in twenty in Australia. Is that right? Oh, that's probably a little bit too high. I um, thought so. Yeah, yeah he so tends to gild the lily. Yeah. <laughs> what, are, what are the kind of rates of skin cancers in Australia? Yeah, I mean, the, there's different types of skin cancers. Sure. Firstly, yep. right. So, um, I think the different studies say about one in two will get a form of skin cancer. But one that, in two. But that number is obscured by it's you know the basal cells, the squamous cells, and a lot of people will have multiple lesions. That would obscure sort of the overall ratio. Oh, so, so if somebody gets ten skin cancers, then yeah, that inflates that data. A little bit, ah, right, absolutely. Right. But so for melanomas, it's definitely not that high. But in but, terms of other forms of skin cancers, such as basal cells, yeah, it's probably up there. Well, let's let's go through the different cancers. The yeah. three types of skin cancers I know about are squamous cell carcinoma, basal cell carcinoma, and melanoma. Can you just yeah. take us through those three? Absolutely, they're probably the main three yeah. skin cancers. There's, there are more. Yep. Um, Melanoma is the one that gets a lot of press because of its potential to kill someone. And it is a disease of the young people, third most common cancer in the young age group between 15 and 24. And that's why there's a lot of interest on that. Um, But whereas the majority of Australians will get other forms of skin cancer, Mm -hmm. basal cell and squamous cell, which is related to chronic sun exposure. And um, and the older we get, the more we'll get. Because you've had more sun. The Absolutely. Older, yeah, yeah. And the build-up of DNA damage there. Right. And um, those two are less dangerous uh, with a very small risk of spread. Mm. Whereas melanoma, much greater chance of spreading. Mm. Thus, those ones want, want to pick up early. Yeah. So melanoma is a disease uh, uh, of younger and older people. Absolutely. It affects the, all ages, really. And, and that the, the danger with melanoma is it can spread to your liver, to your bones, and can, yeah, and can, can ultimately kill you. Unfortunately, yes. Yeah, and yeah. that's where the early detection is critical. Yeah. Can we go back to the cells, so the melanocyte? Yes. What, what's the story behind these cells? That... Um, so they're usually the, they're the pigment cells in the body. Um, and always through the... Um, the UV damage, they can cause muta- mutations, I guess, in those cells and become atypical and then has the ability to to sort of spread, I guess, um, become cancerous and metastasize and spread through the body uh, with time if left untreated. So um, people don't necessarily have to present with a skin lesion. You can have a melanoma in other sites. Yeah. But they're, they're rarer, like Correct. So brain. <clears throat> about 90-plus percent, I mean, high... 95 percent um there's a known melanoma on the skin probably anywhere from three to five percent there's melanomas where they pop up with a gland or with a liver spot uh with no melanoma found on the skin so fortunately that's very uncommon um relatively speaking but we do see them um as well Mm. um i was uh, wondering about people using smartphones to take pictures of their skin uh, mm. is that something that mm. there's enough quality in the in the phones uh, as in just to purely to monitor their lesions yeah, we should or? we should all take be, be taking um, obviously <laughs> uh, dr mel takes lots of selfies of his, <laughs> he does, his, yeah. his, yeah. of his self and his biggest organ but um, 
Should we all be doing that? Uh, I, I think it's a it's a device we can use to help us to monitor spots. It doesn't ever replace a hot, you know a doctor's visit. But if you had a suspicious lesion, there are apps online um, that you can download that will assist you in taking photos, but ultimately still requires you to look at them, compare them, and usually do need an expert to do that. One of the things, another fallacy I kept quoting, and you may tell me I'm wrong, was that um, in terms of melanoma risk, it's not just the sun-exposed parts of your body that can develop a melanoma, it's any part of your body that can develop a melanoma. absolutely. When we examine patients, we make sure we look... You know, we get them changed down to their underwears because oh. we do need to see all parts of their body. It can be between the toe web spaces, um, can be under, can be in the groin, can be right. underneath the armpits. So it doesn't have to be sun exposed. And, but well, but your chances of melanoma increase with sun exposure. So even the bits of you that don't get sun, your chances of getting a melanoma increase by the rest, the other parts of you. Sure, sun. yeah, absolutely. Which, it's, is, it's, which is kind of weird. It's, it's kind, kind of, of weird, yeah. but um, I mean, majority will be on the, on the sun-exposed yeah. areas, but there are the ones that, that aren't, and yeah. that's partly related to the cumulative sort of, you know, increased UV exposure you get over your lifetime. Yeah. I've got another question to ask you. <laughs> I've heard about this immunotherapy uh, um, trial uh, with people who've had um, disseminated uh, melanoma, that is melanoma spread throughout their body, they get this miraculous immunotherapy and it kind of just melts away the cancer i mean is this tell us yeah, about that yeah so about seven years ago if you had a melanoma that spread to any part of your body <clears throat> organs terrible outcome yeah. you know you're probably dead within 12 months yeah uh, there was no effective chemotherapy um and f- but fortunately in the last you know five to seven years major breakthroughs that's been game-changing melanoma therapy and also for other cancers potentially so there's Immunotherapy, which you've start, just mentioned, that's yeah. one class of drugs. Yeah. Um, there's also another class of drugs you know, called BRAF inhibitors, which targets the cancer pathway. Hang on a second, BRAF. Yes. Okay, BRAF inhibitors. <laughs> so yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a... Sounds cool. Sounds cool. It does sound cool. And there's, <laughs> yeah. there's NRAS and uh, there's KIT. So we've got, we've got fancy names the for these. Yes. Acronyms, yeah. <laughs> um, essentially, they're just pathways to the melanoma development and there's drugs to inhibit that yeah right and to prevent them from becoming you know to, to i guess to eradicate them so immunotherapy getting back to your question mm. uh, and that's where all the press has been Mm-mm. right and i'm sure if i've got ron walker um at the beginning he was one of the main champions of mm-hmm. um of immunotherapy and getting onto listed on the pbs mm-hmm. uh, which now fortunately it is oh, um, really? it yeah. is for the for the very advanced diseases mm-hmm. uh, uh, so it's only for advanced diseases. correct currently it is still for advanced diseases uh, because of the expense would you uh one expense more on the evidence actually so with all drug therapies they start off with the highest i guess risk patients the ones with widespread disease and we're slowly bringing it back to see how early these drugs can be instituted to have a benefit so there's studies that are coming out in the last last six months showing that patients with stage three disease which is melanoma that's gone to your glands um, usually there's no therapy for them apart from clinical observation but they've shown maybe giving these drugs early might help them to have a longer disease-free time as well wow so the the thing that I'm understanding is that the minute you have a diagnosis of a melanoma, quick, get it out. So and you get a big 
get all the margins of where the tumour is or the, the spot is, and then that's a good first-line treatment and hopefully you've got that early and it hasn't. And then would you scan and check where if it has spread? No. So the good thing is about 90% of melanomas don't travel anywhere, right? And it's mm-hmm. just on the skin. Mm-hmm. So once you've cut it out, you have had the definitive management. So you don't need scans, you don't need blood tests, you mm. carry on with life. Uh, apart from a few visits to your doctor or dermatologist a year, that's all that will be. Mm. But I guess the focus is being on that smaller group because of the severity of the spread, right? So, but fortunately, largely there's many, many patients walking around with melanoma history. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, I, I'm just wondering the psychology behind um, how you can get people to get their skin checked. And the GP would be the first point mm, of call, mm, obviously, mm, to, mm. to get your skin checked. Um, how do you get the message across to to get people to check their skin more often or get their partners to check their skin? Because it sounds like a pretty simple thing to do. It is, it is. And um, summer coming up is usually the best time for us. Uh, It's usually when we're wearing less clothing, uh, people are starting to notice things. Um, And so there's, you know, around summertime, multiple campaigns are sort of run from various bodies trying to encourage people to do that. Um, And often does take news from, you know, uh, whether it be a close friend or media, you know, um, news stories to prompt someone to seek attention. And we do see that, you know, with radio programs, TV ads, people coming in after seeing them. Mm. Um, But often the barriers are the same to someone seeking skin check as much as any other health issues mm-hmm. uh, with men in particular, uh, that denial. Um, and uh, I would have thought denial would have been a big part of it too. Absolutely. Like you just don't want to think about that. So you put it at the back of your mind and maybe that lump has changed or maybe that skin oh, yeah. freckle has changed and, oh, look, I'll do it later. I don't want to worry about that because yeah. the implications are so terrifying. Mm. And, and people go into denial and it's mm. usually their partner or a friend or Next GP visit, somebody notices oh, yeah, it. Absolutely. Yeah. It's not uncommon to see patients with spots that's been changing for 12 months. Yeah. And they know. Yeah. They're afraid that there's going to be melanoma. Yeah. They yeah. just put it off. Yeah. And I mean, it's quite sad when that does happen, but uh, it well, does happen. Your message is that the, you know, the absolute soonest that we can get hold of it, the sooner the treatment, the better their outcome. Our goal is to make sure none of the melanomas will yeah. pick up spread. Yeah. And yeah. that's the ultimate goal. And all these drugs are great for the ones that have escaped early yeah. sort of care. Um, but we get greater s- satisfaction when we pick up spots people aren't aware of and we can tell them they're cured of the melanoma yeah. when we pick it up so early. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Mal and I were talking in the, <clears throat> in the green room before. How did you get into dermatology? <clears throat> what, where, yeah. where does that passion come from? Yeah, it's been asked a few times. Um, so it actually, I don't think I've shared this with too many people. Um, <laughs> You're amongst yeah, friends, yeah. There's just a few of us here. <laughs> Just, just the listeners. But uh, no, um, when I was in high, uh, early stages of university, all well, my friends from high school died of melanoma, mm. right? And, um, and that struck me quite profoundly. And, and I sought out as a student his dermatologist, right? And uh, did research with him. And, um, and that's what 10 plus years now. And I'm here. You know, this is the area of my interest and passion. So... Mm. It often is something personal like that, isn't it? It is. That, 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 that gives you a vocation and a passion for your career. That, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's hard when you, as a student, number one, to start off with. You need to find that area where you're passionate about medicine. Yeah. I think you do the best when you have passion about yeah, it. absolutely. And so skin cancers are your passion. What about other areas of dermatology when you're not doing skin cancers uh, or looking after people with skin cancers? What kind of stuff do you see most often in your clinic? Yeah, I mean, there's... 
dermatology is wonderful because we see a breadth of um, all diseases, the young, the old, uh, a lot of surgical and medical, right? So, and there's a lot of chronic diseases. So a lot of my patients have psoriasis, for example, bad poorly controlled eczema. Um, and then there's the young people with acne, for example. I yep. know it gets downplayed a lot, mm. um, but for a teenager where, you yep. know, self-confidence, you know, mm. as they're growing up, uh, it's critical. So, I mean, the thing is we see a breadth of things, in, including psychiatric conditions, yep. right? Sure. So people have neurotic skin conditions that um, needs us to work through. Mm. And, um, and vitiligo, for example, people with dark-skinned where they lost pigment, yes. you know. So things that can be very, you know, permanent chronic and um, mentally sort of scarring for yeah. a lot of these patients. Do, do you have like any, I mean, one of the reasons that I was thinking about dermatology, <laughs> there, was no way, <laughs> there was no way you guys were going to let me into that. Was that uh, there were no, I heard there were no emergencies. Now, is that true? Like, that, 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 that is not night? true. That is not true. Really? Uh, absolutely not. Uh, we do, and I have been woken up as a trainee doctor back in the day. Once. Um, once. once. <laughs> Twice, 20 twice. years ago, I was working up. <laughs> no, there, there are definitely emergencies. Yeah, what's emergencies um, do you have? So there's emergency drug rashes, number one, right? People can die from rashes from how, their drug reactions. Tell me that. How do you mean? Yeah, so they can get rashes where their skin peel off. The, the, essentially, they become a burns victim. Right? So, hang on, if I take a tablet for some condition unrelated to dermatology, like, yeah. say, for a, what, what sort of condition? Yeah, give us an example oh, of this, a drug. Oh, this is where it gets into dangerous territories, I guess. Any drug really can yeah. potentially cause a drug rash. Yeah, okay. And the severity... And there's a whole spectrum of them. Right. So yeah, any drug can cause it. So what, yeah. and you, and you, it's like a, a burn from the inside or something like oh, that? Oh, no, no. So usually it's, it's a simple skin rash, but sometimes this can be so severe that the top layer of the skin actually becomes dead, right, necrotic, and, yeah. um, and just sort of peel off. I mean, that's very rare, fortunately. Yeah. And we see a handful of cases every year, but yeah. that's an absolute emergency, and, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then sometimes our other chronic patients with psoriasis, uh, eczema, right. yeah. they can flare and yeah. they can be covered head to toe, 95%, yeah. you know, the red, and they need to get – that's an emergency too. Yeah, yeah. They're just a start. So we do have a few, Greg, but not as many as you do, but yeah. um, there are emergencies oh, and that we have to attend do, to as well. Greg, do you want to ask your question? Yes. Um, we've been uh, having conversations with Ian Fraser um, oh, yes. from Queensland yeah. who's been, who has a, a, the man who invented the Gardasil vaccine yeah. and uh, is an incredible scientist, and he believes that uh, – strongly believes that – um, bacteria causes squamous cell carcinomas of the skin, and uh, he's keen to look at the microbiome and oh, yes. see see, yeah. see what things that are yet to be described that might actually be doing it. And um, uh, it would be amazing to find that we treated uh, skin cancers with antibiotics in the future. Absolutely, I think in the melanoma sphere, especially the mi- the microbiome is a huge um, developmental area in the states. Various um, melan- you know labs are looking into that of transferring um, the different bacterias and seeing whether or not that may in fact help to prevent or treat uh, various diseases. Hang on, break this down for me, gentlemen. You're oh. saying that <laughs> a bacteria can cause a skin cancer? That's the belief, that uh, yeah. that uh, the, the sun uh, ageing, the medicines you might be on alter the flora in the skin and you have you have just different bacteria growing. Some of them, some of these things don't have common names, but mm. with, with fancy uh, molecular techniques, they can find things that we've never heard of. Yeah, and they can transfer that um, from one person to another and hopefully that will reduce the cancer. Well, well hang on a second, this is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, was just, I was momentarily distracted as I was lining up the CD, but um, you, you've caught my attention, so... The, the, there is a theory, a conjecture, 
I think there's, ev- there's, there's evidence. Pretty re- reasonable evidence. And there's evidence. Mm. By Australia's most famous scientist Gardasol. who has millions of dollars behind him. Oh. Sorry, hundreds of millions of dollars behind him. He's serious on this. Oh, no, um, stellar reputation, obviously. Mm. Um, but this is just, this is like the whole Barry Marshall thing with bacteria mm-hmm. in the tummy causing uh, ulcers. It is like, it is a complete game changer. So the theory or the, the theory and the evidence is that there are bacteria on your skin that get altered and these bacteria may cause skin cancers. That's it. And there's also about the gut sort of bacteria as well. That's and, your, and, and your gut bacteria can correct. cause skin cancer or, or, be, or associated. Sort of be associated with sort of um, development. So <sighs> My mind is blown. Really? And, yeah. And then they, they're hoping that you know, the transference of the bacteria might just help the body to elicit certain responses. Um, that can help fully fight well, the cancer. This segues beautifully into our show next month at EpiPen because we're getting the uh, professor of poo transplantation. Correct. Well, that's the guy you should talk to. Well, we, 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 we will. <laughs> this is, yeah. The, the title for that I'm most impressed with is Repopulating the Bowel. <laughs> <laughs> I like transpusion myself. <laughs> What a heap of shit. Uh, uh. So that's what you guys Um Yeah, fantastic stuff. We could speak for hours about skin and uh, I'm sure we'll get you back on the show because I'll have loads more uh, personal questions to be asked to you. Um, Professor Greg Snell, um, head of the lung transplant service at the Alfred Hospital. Take me through what's going to happen. If I come to you and say, and you determine that I need a lung transplant, what happens from the moment that you say, yes, Mal, you need a lung transplant. Essentially, we've got to work out your, make some guess of your trajectory towards it. Have yep. you got a disease that's that's progressing fast or slow? Have you got uh, your shape and size and blood group that means that you need um, time on a waiting list or are you actually straightforward and you're very likely to be done by the size and shape of you that, that an organ will come up quickly? So we've got to think about the type of trajectory you're going to have. Mm-hmm. We've got to work you out from top to bottom. Your lungs are going. I'm going to put a new V8 engine in there. And um, and uh, but the question is, is your body a 30 year old Volkswagen or a or a, uh, a Porsche just waiting for that uh, new V8? Right. So we have to work all that out. We've then got to um, line you up at the right time on a waiting list. Um, you still have your ups and downs on the waiting list, and and then suddenly you get a phone call in in the middle of the night to come in for a transplant. Uh, you, you come in with almost no notice and then you have a massive operation. From the patient's point of view, they wake up um, the next day, the next week, whenever it's appropriate, and they're put behind the biggest exam of their life, in a sense, getting to that point. So they're, they're often very relieved. They're on some morphine on Ben Cousins' steroids and they're feeling actually pretty pretty reasonable. And it's a matter of then working out that, oh, my goodness, I've swapped all my known medical problems for a completely different set of them, <laughs> different tablets, different people, and now they're getting better and better. And we typically keep them in hospital for about three weeks and then mm-hmm. they spend um, about another two months around the Alfred getting sort of lean, mean and tough and, uh, mm-hmm. and tuned on all their medicines and then hopefully escape and stay away from us for, for forever. Mm. Um, sorry, stay away from us until the next time they come back, <laughs> yeah. yes. But we, we keep them forever, yeah. yes, but, but mm. staying out of hospital. And, and it's um, obviously different types of um, diseases, different ages mm-hmm. and different expectations. And, you know, the, the stories of people coming in where you get, you know, the second person we transplanted is 27 years ago and, and um, 
uh, he was wishing to just, you know, what did you want to do after the transplant? I'd just like to dance with my wife, he said. Mm. And another nine-year-old who just wanted to, to play with the other kids because no one came around to play with him anymore. And it, mm. this sort of thing, you know, really cracks you up when you, you hear these things. Heartbreaking, yeah. Yeah, and you're saying this isn't a person who's wanting to live 100 years or mm. whatever. They've got specific goals and they just want to get rid of what they've got and move out the other side and take their chances. Mm. Typically, how long would somebody be on a waiting list for? The Rudd Initiative in 2009 has made a major difference to us. So the average waiting time now is about three months. So some people can be done in one month. Some people still, because they're short and had lots of um, sensitisation with blood transfusions Mm. or pregnancies, can take still nine months or a year. But Mm. intrinsically, you know, we we have a much shorter time now. Mm. Still, that can be too long for some people Mm. who fall off the wagon next week and and crash and burn in ICU. And we've got Mm. to be asked asked to try and pick them up at that stage. Mm. And it can still be a a very big rush, but the the the, um, uh, the outcomes of the waiting list are actually dramatically improved over the last you know um, seven or eight years. Mm. And you're talking about if you've got a rapidly progressive disease or a fairly stable disease, can you tell us which ones those are? So um, <coughs> typically, um, the smokers' um, chronic um, obstructive airways disease yep. tends to have a relatively slow course. Um, uh, bronchiectasis in in the middle. Uh, which is where you get recurrent infections and mm. scarring conditions can often be the fastest and they're the scariest ones where, mm. the, where the person just goes down week by week and, and uh, sometimes or seemingly almost day by day and sure. you've got very little time to, to, to explain to them what's going on, try sure. and work them out and the mm. like and get to a transplant. Yeah. What, what are the scarring conditions? So um, pulmonary fibrosis where, where there's no known cause or sometimes where you've had exposure to some things in the environment can, can damage the lungs. And, and often you're trying to work out what's actually going on. Is there anything that we really should be worried about, like infection or cancer? Or is it just no explanation and we've got to get on with it? And very frightening to go from, from um, perfectly well to nowhere in a couple of months and need a transplant. You know, I, I can't... I mean, I've seen a couple of, of patients who have these conditions. It is... It, I can't get my head around it because, I mean, the couple of... In fact, I know one bloke... Um, incredibly healthy like the picture of health and in a couple of months he was you know he was sitting down at a table opposite me breathing heavily and it was a pulmonary fibrosis type condition so i I get what you mean is it can be rapidly progressive and and all of a sudden you're going to make all these life decisions really really quickly and you're facing a transplant and and of course the other end of the spectrum with children you can imagine a child who's out playing you know netball and the like in the community and gets say um, like an infection with with certain bugs or certain viruses and crashes into hospital and really crashes into intensive Mm -hmm. care and can even be trans we've had them transported across state borders to the children's hospital we look at them decide we're going to they're not going to come out the other side without a transplant we end up doing a transplant and you're waking up a child who didn't even, who last knew that they went into a hospital oh. a, a thousand kilometres away and here they are with a cut on their chest and mum and dad are trying to explain what we've done to try and save their life. How do you, I mean, how, you must have a team of psychologists and psychiatrists dealing, or, you know, social workers and other people dealing with the emotional kind of tsunami that happens with that. We've certainly developed a lot of experience yeah. amongst the um, uh, nursing, yep. medical staff yep. and uh, social workers and, and that, as you yep. say, but but uh, uh, some of these things are very hard to for people to get their heads around. And there's, there is an element of, you know, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder yeah. going through the intensive care units and these fancy machines. And that's the downside of 
leaving some of these decisions to the last minute and 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 saying oh they'll fix me up I'm young I'll get a I'll get a transplant but mm. if you have to go through the the near death experience of not being able to breathe in intensive care like, intensive care is a tough place to sit for weeks yeah yeah look even going in as a doctor I remember it was just it was overwhelming it's, I mean I, you walk into a cubicle and there's a bank of machinery there and this sort of unconscious body in the middle and oftentimes I thought to myself you could remove that unconscious body and just to see the bank of machinery, it's, it, you know, it, you often forget there's a person there because there's so much machinery keeping them alive. And, it is and, frightening. And it's like a battery chicken farm. It's, it's happening all day, all night. The lights are on. The chickens are expected to, to lay eggs and, yeah. and, and eventually sort of move, move on. Uh, it's, it's a very um, tough environment as yeah. much as they try and you know, make it as friendly as possible. Yeah. It's very intense. One of the big interventions in, in ICU was to have windows leading to the outside, wasn't it? So you could see the, the day change. Because I... Again, being a doctor in ICU, you didn't know whether it was night or day outside a lot of the time. Yeah, exactly. And, it, and the Alfred, if the, you know, the patients are getting a, a, a treat when they're up and moving, you take them down to the window to see the <laughs> helicopters land. Yeah. <laughs> um, and what's what kind of um, longevity can somebody expect from a lung transplant? I mean, how long would would it typically last for? Um, typically, these days is the average would be um, seven years. The ten-year survival is around fifty uh, percent. Um, but it's the the frustration in the sense of dealing with a very complex situation is that you can have some people who can run into trouble um, early, and some people who never run into trouble. And it's un, sort of unfair. The very first person we transplanted is a real character from South Australia, and he's he's coming up to twenty-eight years. 28 years. And, the and, first lung transplant. Yeah, and you think, wow. how naive was he and how naive <laughs> were we? Yeah. You thought everybody you know, has a lung that lasts 28 years. Yeah. Wow, that is just absolutely incredible. Um, so what do you tell patients when they say, you know, Professor, how long will this pair of lungs last? What, what, what information do you give them? Obviously, we can a little bit um, personalise it based on the total knowledge of the whole whole case. But, yep. but it, invariably, my, my story is to say you can expect that uh, you'll do well for a period. There may be adventures. There may be not. You've got to be prepared that that strange things happen to you from head to foot. You've also got to be prepared that nothing will happen and all of this carry on beforehand seems as though it should have been done earlier because it was all going to work. So it, yeah. that's a challenge for people. Mm. And, 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 and you get some people who sort of think that life's absolutely normal and at the other end you get some really interesting stories. There was one girl who followed a rock band around the world and you could argue that's not the best way to look after yourself but for a you know, vivacious redhead in her 20s with a limited life expectancy, maybe that's exactly what she should be doing. Wow. And if, um, look, it was, it was due to my poor uh, time management logistics that we haven't given you more time. We've got to get you back on the show. But what do you think has been the major uh, change in your field in the last decade? You know, what, what, what's changed the most? In Australia, I think it is a, a combination of the way we've done the, um, the the donation processes and the transplants that we're actually shortening our waiting list. It makes it much easier mm. if your patient's coming into the operation have actually got some protoplasm left. Mm. So mm. I think the government initiatives have actually made a big difference and, mm. and we've helped that by using different types of donors as well that we never used to use. Mm-hmm. The medicines haven't actually changed. Right. It's, it's actually the anti-infection agents, if anything, rather than the clever re- rejection drugs. And just attention to detail. So Fantastic stuff. Promise me that uh, you won't hold it against me and come back on the show? Absolutely. Thank you so much. That is Professor Greg Snell. We've also had Dr. Yan Pan uh, uh, in uh, with us uh, today talking about dermatology and, of course, the vivacious. <laughs> She's falling asleep. <laughs> um, Never. Nurse EpiPen. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.